The kingdom of heaven is like a king who made a marriage feast for his son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we'll start by entrusting everyone here to Our Lady's Maternal and Immaculate Heart by asking for everyone's prayers, real prayers. For all those who have been hurt and involved in any way in what we're going to talk about, unfortunately there's just no delicate way to approach this topic. And on a topic that's so wound up with pain and emotional distress, there are bound to be people uh, who may feel hurt by some of what we're going to cover today. That pertains to anyone, I apologize in advance. Because ultimately, the only thing I'm really concerned is not so much pain in this life, but in the next. And I'm going to assume the reason you're here is you'd rather hear hard truths than soothing lies. And we're in this all together anyway. As usual, the quotes will be cut and pasted, edited. There are far too many sources to cite each one. So let's get started. By now, Everyone has heard the Pope has established a special commission to, quote, examine possibilities for streamlining the annulments process, close quote. One well-known liberal reporter claims that a streamlined, easy annulment process for Catholics who want a quick way out of their marriage, quote, would arguably represent a boost to American Catholic pride because streamlining annulments would offer yet another case in which an approach pioneered by the Church in the United States as becoming the de facto global norm, close quote. But on the other hand, more than 20 years ago, Archbishop Vincenzo Fagalio, at that time the head of the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, referred to the volume of annulments in the United States as a, quote, grave scandal. So which is it? Should we view this proposed movement to streamline the nomads process as a boost to our American Catholic pride, or should we view it as a grave scandal? In order to form a coherent answer to that question, we need to spend some time considering, first, exactly what is an annulment. The correct term is actually a declaration of nullity. And second, what is the annulment situation in America that could lead us to such completely opposite conclusions. Declarations of nullity. Remember that marriage is a relationship resulting from a contract. And here's the contract that the couple make when they exchange vows. The man and the woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. By validly making and then consummating this contract, the two become more closely related to each other than a brother is to his sister, than a father is to his own son. And that relationship is made directly by God. That relationship is perpetual, which means it lasts until death. It's exclusive, which means it pertains only to that woman and that man and no one else. And it's limited, which means the couple only has the rights for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's what marriage is. Once we clearly understand that marriage 
is a God-made relationship resulting from a man-made contract, it's easy to see the almost infinite difference there is between a divorce and a decree of nullity commonly known as an annulment. Divorce claims to break up a marriage actually in being. It can do no such thing. Nullity means the marriage never came into being. It is the discovery that the contract to marriage did not exist, that the contract was not valid. Marriage is not only a contract, but it results from a contract, and that means that if there is no contract, then no relationship can result. So nullity concerns the marriage contract only. If this is valid, the relationship arises and cannot be nullified. That's essential to understand. If the contract is validly made, then nothing, absolutely nothing that happens only after the marriage has come into being can possibly be a ground for a decree of nullity. And that is why the only question asked by the church is, was the contract properly entered into? Was the contract validly made? If it was, then there can be no possible question of nullity. The marriage came into being, which means that the parties are now governed by the laws of marriage, not by the contract. If the contract was validly made, then it would be simply false to say that the union never was a marriage. But that is exactly what a decree of nullity means. Okay, so a decree of nullity, commonly called an annulment, is a finding by a tribunal. A tribunal is basically one of the church courts of law. A decree of nullity, commonly called an annulment, is a finding by a tri- tribunal that the contract to marriage did not exist, that the contract was not validly made. And again, although marriage is not only a contract, it results from a contract, and so if there was no contract, then the marriage did not and could not come into existence. A decree of nullity is issued by a diocesan marriage tribunal, which is supposed to follow a fairly rigorous process to collect and review the essential facts, after which a judgment on the validity of the marriage contract is made. So the tribunal renders a judgment, and then a second court, which is usually in a neighboring diocese, also reviews the judgment to make sure nothing's overlooked. The decision may be appealed to the sacred Roman rota. That's a Roman tribunal for these cases. There are a whole hierarchy of tribunals, ranging from a diocesan tribunal all up to the way to those ones found in Rome, the sacred Roman rota and the apostolic signatura, which Cardinal Burke is the head of, at least uh, for the time being. Errors are possible in a tribunal's process. Just think Joan of Arc. Errors are possible in a tribunal process, which is why the decisions are reviewed. If, however, the witnesses are honest and the tribunal is conscientious about following the letter and the spirit of the law, the decree is morally certain, and so it can be followed in good faith. In a recent interview just done last week with Raymond Arroyo, and I can't recommend this interview highly enough, Cardinal Burke, the head of the highest tribunal in the Catholic Church, the Apostolic Signatura, explains that although the process by which the Church examines the nullity of a supposed marriage is not of divine law, quote, it is of divine law that the Church has to have a process, a means, of verifying objectively and with moral certainty the claims of nullity. That's of divine law. Close quote Cardinal Burke. 
So the marriage tribunals of the church examine claims of nullity. And once we see that a declaration of nullity can only be issued by a tribunal, then it's easy to understand what's wrong with two unfortunate practices. First, the so-called internal forum solution. By this we mean the idea, unfortunately promoted by many wicked priests, that they can somehow grant annulments in a confessional or in a conversation. But only a competent tribunal of the Holy Catholic Church can issue a declaration of nullity. We priests just don't have that power, period, full stop. Unfortunately, this practice is fairly common. I contacted a Dawson priest elsewhere and asked him about it, and I quote, This internal form business is horrific. Not only are priests out here doing it regularly. Not only are priests out here doing it regularly. Not only are priests out here doing it regularly, but the Dawson canon law office recommends it whenever an annulment doesn't go through. Close quote. I asked, do you encounter it frequently? And he answered, Father, it's present in every single parish of the diocese, I'm sure. I deal with it at least three or four times per year. This internal forum business is horrific. Not only are priests out here doing it regularly, but the diocesan canon law office recommends it whenever an annulment doesn't go through. It is present in every single parish of the diocese. I deal with it at least three or four times per year. If anyone here has been misled in this way by one of these wicked priests, for the love of God and salvation of your soul, come see one of us. Second, declarations by marriage commissions or tribunals of the Society of St. Pius X. On their website, they refer to the St. Charles Borromeo Canonical Commission, but the paperwork that I've personally handled was issued by the St. Raymond de Penafort Tribunal of Farley, Missouri. Even if their decisions were absolutely correct and the reasons and conclusions, they are utterly worthless. They're utterly worthless, as we can easily see by making a quick comparison. If I took nine upstanding members of the community here, put black robes on them, and then had them write out morally brilliant and constitutionally precise decisions, overthrowing Roe v. Wade, Lawrence v. Texas, what legal value would this supposed work have? None. Absolutely none whatsoever. Legally speaking, they wouldn't be worth the paper they're printed on. It won't work in the American court system, and it sure won't work in God's court system. The SSPX has no jurisdiction. That's not even debatable. They have absolutely no power to wreck anything even remotely resembling a marriage tribunal, and that's not even debatable. No jurisdiction doesn't mean all the jurisdiction necessary to produce a court system. No jurisdiction actually means no jurisdiction. If anybody's in this position, for the love of God and the salvation of your soul, come see one of us. Back to our topic. There are two different processes by which a marriage tribunal comes to a conclusion regarding validity or nullity of a marriage contract. The fairly cut and dry processes are dealt with by means of an administration thing called the documentary process. It's used to deal with cases like those involving defect of form. Defect of form occurs when a Catholic isn't married in the Catholic Church. He doesn't have a dispensation from his bishop. 
So he goes, get married at the Wedding Blues Chapel, the first chapel of what's happening now or who knows what? No marriage, okay? They deal with cases like that. Or if a par- either one of the partners were below the legal age to get married. So uh, in the Code of Canon Law, a guy has to be at least 16 years old and the girl has to be at least 14 years old. And if they're younger than that, they can't contract for marriage. They can go through the actions. It, doesn't, it can't result in a marriage, okay? In these kind of cases... The tribunal examines the documents and sees, for example, that the Catholic couple attempted marriage outside the church. It's obviously involved. There's nothing more to see. Declaration of nullity, just like that. According to an article in the Catholic World Report, 21% of the declarations of nullity in the United States in 2007 were issued by means of the documentary process. And out of those, three-quarters of them were granted for reasons of defect of form. In other words, for Catholics who attempted to contract marriage outside the church. This is why when you learn your catechism, one of the things in the precepts of the church is we're going to follow the marriage laws of the church. It's so you don't get in trouble. This is Council of Trent stuff, okay? So that's a documentary process. The other process is known as the ordinary process. That requires a trial to determine whether or not the marriage is validly contracted. These cases deal with, with situations such as permanent impotence at the, at the time of the contract, claims of a shotgun wedding, claims that one or other of the spouses are absolutely fixed on never having children or, or being into polygamy, or, or like cases of sham marriage. A sham marriage is where the couple said the words, but at least one party was only simulating the contract because he had some other motive. For example, what he wanted to do is get legal status in the country. Other questions about the valid, validity of consent. So in 2007, 79% of the declarations of nullity here in the United States were granted through the ordinary process, and that requires the trial. The one's paperwork, this one requires the trial. All that by way of background. We started by asking whether we should review this proposed movement to streamline the annulments process as a boost to our American Catholic pride, or whether we should view it as a grave scandal. We saw that in order to form a coherent answer to that question, we needed to spend some time considering first exactly what is a declaration of annulity, what do we mean when we say popularly an annulment, and secondly, what is the annulment situation here in these United States. We've considered the first part, declaration of annulity. We'll turn to the second part, the annulment situation in America. Now, in preparing this sermon, I read literally hundreds of pages on this topic from all sides of the spectrum. But for this part of the sermon, we'll rely largely on a brilliant 1998 book written by Robert H. Fasoli. He's, a, a lay, he's, he's deceased, but he was a professor at Notre Dame, What God Has Joined Together. I should also recommend an article he wrote for Homiletic and Pastoral Review entitled Annulments in America, Rebutting a Rebuttal, because that makes absolute hash out of the most plausible arguments that are put forth in defense of the current practice. So Robert H. Vasoli, his writings, and also a website entitled Mary's Advocates. That's sort of a one-stop shop to find out everything you need to know about upholding the church's actual teaching on marriage and marriage nullity. Unbelievable resource. You can just download paper after paper. Unbelievable resource there. So Mary Ad- website, Mary's Advocates uh, website, and what God has joined together, Robert H. Vasoli. So let's get started. Question we're going to explore, should we view this as a boost to our pride or as a scandal? So I'm going to read tribunal statistics 
from the Canon Law Society of America from the year 2011. <clears throat> I'm fully aware there's much more here than what I will read in the data. I'm trained as a scientist, but it's a sermon, not a lecture with slides, so we're just going to hear what we hear because it's the sake of time. Listen carefully. In 2011, Los Angeles Tribunal. Total formal decisions, 530. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. Now walk back through that just to make sure everybody understands what I just read. In 2011, the L.A. Tribunal rendered 530 decisions regarding the validity of marriage contracts. And the percentage of those total decisions, the percentage of those 530 decisions which were found contrary to nullity were 0%. We're given the percentage of those contrary to nullity, it's the same as saying the percentage is which they found the marriage was valid. In other words, 100% of their cases resulted in a declaration of nullity. Not even one of the cases, not one, was seen as a valid marriage. That's what we're, so you understand the statistics I'm reading. 2011, the Cleveland Tribunal. Total formal decisions, 277. Percent of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, the Pittsburgh Tribunal. Total formal decisions, 216. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, Milwaukee Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 208. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, Rockville Center Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 194. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, the Toledo Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 149. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, the Allentown Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 142. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. I would have to go until I read 40, the results from 42 tribunals here in the United States, 42 diocesan tribunals, before the percentage climbs from 0% to 1%. In other words, in 2011, in 42 dioceses, 100% of the cases are found to be null. I think everybody gets the idea here. There are 10 pages of these statistics here. 10 pages. 10 pages. Let that sink in. So what's the message here? In dioceses like these, it seems pretty clear. You bring us the divorce, and we'll bring you the annulment. Instead of calling these tribunals, we ought to call them annulment mills. They're just milling them. It's pretty clear we can already answer the question. This is a grave scandal. I can't get the first secret out of my mind every time I read this stuff. Grave scandal. Before we leave the point, let me read data from the last three tribunals listed in these ten pages. 2011, St. Paul, Minneapolis Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 151. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 30%. 2011, Colorado Springs Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 35 
percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 31 percent. 2011, Fort Wayne South Bend Tribunal, total form of decisions, 63. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 33 percent. Okay. So two possibilities spring to mind. Either the people who live and get married in St. Paul or Minneapolis or Colorado Springs or Fort Bend or, or Fort Wayne or South Bend are significantly different than all other American couples. Significantly different. Or the tribunals are significantly different. I don't think you need me to point out to you which is more likely. Don't forget, talking about souls. Immortal souls. Souls our Lord poured his blood out for. Where are they going to spend eternity? Where are they going to spend eternity? The numbers are just inconceivable. Vasoli, quote, is not terribly far-fetched to speculate between 1980 and 1994 the American church annulled more marriages than did the entire church since its founding. That was 20 years ago. If that were true then, today it's virtually certain there have been more annulments in America in the last 34 years than an entire Catholic church since the time of the apostles. Let's not forget. How could we possibly forget that each and every one of these statistics represents a tragedy? American tribunals actually require a civil divorce. I have literally no idea how this can be reconciled with the clear teaching of the church in this grave matter. St. John Paul II, quote, pastoral activity must support and promote indissolubility. One cannot give in to the divorce mentality. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. American tribunals actually require a civil divorce, in spite of the fact that in Malachi 2.16, the Bible says the Lord hates divorce. And the catechism states that divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. And the Code of Canon Law actually requires a written decree from the bishop himself to separate, except in the case of emergencies. And the Code of Canon Law also requires the bishop's permission to even approach a divorce court and then only if the civil court orders are not opposed to divine law. And yet, in spite of all this, the American tribunals actually require a civil divorce before they will even consider the question of nullity. And given that annulments are not considered till after a civil divorce, it's obvious that the prospect of an easy annulment could encourage couples who are having tough times in their marriage to break up. And what could possibly be more encouraging to that end than these annulment mills that just pump out a decree of annulment 100% of the time? 
It's scandalous. It's, easy also, it's also easy to see how someone could think, hey, if there's so many invalid marriages, maybe my marriage wasn't valid either. And to the very degree that this sort of impression becomes more widespread, the general Catholic population, to that very same degree, the stability and the security of everyone's marriages are weakened. This just shakes and undermines the foundations. Again, the words of St. John Paul II. One cannot give in to the divorce mentality. Pastoral activity must support and promote indissolubility. And now a few parenthetical remarks as a spiritual favor to the lawyers that might be listening, since American bishops have apparently abandoned you just like they have the pharmacists. St. John Paul II, quote, Professionals in the field of civil law should avoid being personally involved in anything that might imply a cooperation with divorce. Lawyers, as independent professionals, should always decline the use of their profession for an end that is contrary to justice, as is divorce. They can only cooperate in this kind of activity when an intention of the client is not directed to the breakup of the marriage, but to the securing of other legitimate effects that can only be obtained through such a judicial process in the established legal order. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. If you've been involved in this, you need to get it out of it immediately. Don't say you can't find anything else to do. You can find something else to do, and you need to find something else to do. For love of God and the salvation of the soul, you need to do it quick. Get out of Egypt. Let's reflect on a few more of the problems here, starting with a few more statistics cited in the Catholic World Report article. In the year 2007, in 140 nations and territories around the world, there was not a single declaration of nullity for reasons of defect of consent. In that same year, 37 other nations around the world granted between one to a dozen declarations of nullity on defect of consent grounds. But here in the United States, of the almost 28,000 declarations of nullity granted in 2007 by the ordinary process, 99.6% were granted for reasons of defect of consent. It gets worse. Unbelievably enough, it gets worse. In a study of a full decade of decisions reviewed by the Sacred Roman Rota, at least 92% of the American defective consent cases were overturned. 92% overturned. In the year 2000, in 140 nations and territories around the world, there wasn't a single declaration of nullity for reasons of effective consent. In that same year, 37 other nations around the world granted between one and a dozen declarations of nullity on those grounds. And yet here in these United States in that same year, 99.6% of the roughly 28,000 declarations of nullity were for reasons of defective consent. And in a study of a full decade, 92% of American defective consent cases were overturned by the sacred Roman Rota. Let that sink in. Okay, so properly understood, what exactly does defective consent mean? 
We'll rely on only the most authoritative commentators to explain it. Remember, keep this in mind, when we're talking about an invalidity, we're only talking about defecting consent at the very moment of exchanging vows. Keep that in mind. Just don't forget that the whole time we're talking. St. John Paul II explains that only incapacity in giving consent invalidates a marriage, and only the most severe forms of mental illness substantially impair the freedom of the individual. Benedict XVI elaborated on John Paul's two teaching by explaining that in order for that incapacity to be established before a marriage tribunal, a specific serious mental illness which seriously impairs the use of reason or the will had to be present before the attempted marriage. Let's splice those together. Only incapacity in giving consent invalidates a marriage. Now, the most severe forms of mental illness substantially impair the freedom of the individual And for that incapacity to be established before a tribunal, a specific serious mental illness which seriously impairs the use of reason or the will had to be present before the attempted marriage. Okay, so we're talking severe mental illness. Properly understood, then, defective consent refers to someone who's out of his mind at the very time of exchanging vows because of a pre-existing condition, or this would also include somebody who happens to be extremely drunk right then or high on drugs at the moment of exchanging vows. One of the most amazing implications of this, from the point of view of this priest, is that somehow these serious psychological incapacities, which allegedly seriously impaired the use of reason on the part of one or both partners, were completely invisible to the very priest who prepared the couple and who witnessed their marriage. These things were completely invisible to the true witnesses, standing on the other side of the bride and groom, who presumably are very close friends and know them very well. And as invisible as these crippling incapacities were to the very people responsible before God and man to make sure this contract is entered into in a serious and sober manner, that's what the priest and the witnesses are doing, yet from years and even decades away, American tribunals can somehow hone in on and detect these previously unknown, in fact, Invisible psychological states. It's just spectacular. It's spectacular. The implications of this tribunal work raise even more serious questions. We'll just consider the men. Is there actually such an immense pool of men unable to contract marriage because some reason they valiantly can't give consent to the contract? Do tribunals really expect us to take this seriously? Just ask yourself, does the average guy getting married have at least the maturity of a 16-year-old, and does he believe that he's taking his wife to have and to hold from that day forward, for better or for worse, for rich or poor, in sickness and health, to death to impart? Is that really that hard to consent to that? Okay, so if there actually were such an immense pool of men unable to validly consent to this marriage contract, and given that we priests are drawn from exactly the same pool of men as are the grooms, then it would only be logical to conclude there would be a correspondingly immense pool of priests here in the U.S. who, although they went through the rite of ordination, nonetheless were unable to actually give consent to actually being ordained, okay? Because this is certainly a more challenging question being asked to the man being ordained to the priesthood. But if that were true, 
Since an invalidly ordained man does not become a priest, then except for the baptisms he performs, he wouldn't be able to confect any of the other sacraments. He wouldn't be able to say Mass. He's not really a priest. He wouldn't be able to absolve sins. He's not really a priest. He wouldn't be able to give the last rites. He wouldn't really be a priest. In fact, the sacraments would suddenly vanish throughout most of our fair land. And worse yet, there'd be no way for anyone to tell. It's just not possible. God didn't make things that hard. We knew what we were doing when we got ordained, and most of those guys knew what they were doing when they got married. Okay, there's other consequences of this sort of rubber stamping by tribunals. Okay, when tribunals just spew out declarations of nullity for 100% of the cases put forward, as we've heard, it's a screaming injustice for everyone. It makes it extremely difficult for the couples with even the most solid cases to have that kind of peace of soul they need in knowing their situation has been treated with the rigor and attention deserved for such a grave and painful matter. And by the only possible body that can do it. I can't judge them. We priests can't do it. The only organ that can do it is a tribunal. That is it. So do we need to streamline an old process? Absolutely not. Cardinal Burke addressed this issue last week. I quote, The difficulty is not the process. It's a lack of people who are prepared to carry it out properly. As soon as the bishops properly prepare candidates to carry out the process, there won't be a difficulty. My recommendation is let's find a way to prepare people well to serve in the marriage tribunals. Close quote, Cardinal Burke. Let's close today with some reflections from an abandoned spouse. When my situation first started to explode, I was going to tell myself, well, who wants to stay married to someone who's this horrible? Then I started to see it's not an option. I am married. I can't stop being married to him any more than I can stop being my mother's daughter. It's just not possible. And what about his soul? A person can always turn around. A spouse is doing a terrible thing when they abandon a marriage. They're committing a grave, manifest sin. Why they're committing it, what's going on in their heart and soul, I can't know for certain. For all I know, my husband has been given scandal by some of the slippery reasons in literature that's published in the United States regarding grounds for annulment. If my concern is for my spouse's soul... The idea of jumping ship is not an option. We're talking about somebody's soul here. Who knows what can happen in his heart and soul? So we're talking about eternity, not just what's happening in the here and now. I mean, I'm hanging in there until death do us part. I'm like one of those women whose husband is missing in action. The woman just keeps going, looking and waiting for her husband until she knows he's dead. And I know our marriage isn't dead until one of us is actually dead. So I'm just going to keep looking and waiting. I have nowhere else to go. I'm like one of those women whose husband is missing in action. The woman just keeps going, looking and waiting for her husband until she knows he's dead. I know our marriage isn't dead until one of us is actually dead.
So I'm just going to keep looking and waiting. I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go.